Before we jump into our sermon tonight, we are going to be looking specifically at, I don't see the graphic, so it must not have made it up there, but specifically looking at Genesis. Um, So we will be spending some time in there. We'll be kicking off our series in Genesis. I do want to take a moment for us to pray together as a church, um, specifically thinking about as we go into 2023 and we are excited about the many ministries that we have going on. Um, You've heard about many of them over the week. Some of them you even heard tonight. We have a women's equip study starting this week. We have men's study starting next week. We have every week opportunities to feed the neediest of our communities. And every month we, we go downtown and we feed the homeless in the area as well. So within all of these things, there's much excitement. We can be greatly encouraged by the things that God's doing and the way that God's moving in our church. And so we want to pray specifically for unity. And unity in the sense that as we gain in our excitement and our joy of these things happening, we want to avoid the potential for disunity, for conflict to arise in those things and really sap us of our encouragement, sap us of the things that God would desire for us to be encouraged by And ultimately, as we are unified in one mission to, as Diane says every week, to multiply a passionate love for Jesus Christ and those made in his image, as we seek to follow and be united in that mission, I think it's appropriate for us to pray towards that end, pray as a church towards that end. So let's bow together and pray before we jump into our scriptures this evening. God, we are grateful for our time together tonight. We gather each Sunday, not simply to meet, not simply to come together and have conversations, not simply to talk, but to worship. Father, we thank you for the music that praises your name that we were able to sing tonight. Thank you for musicians who give their time and their energies and their talents to lead us in praising your name. God, thank you for your word that we read. It gives us life. It encourages us like nothing else ever could. Thank you for this church. Thank you for Eternal City. In your good plan, God, you have brought together a group of people called Eternal City Church, people from different backgrounds, different stories, but God, you've seen fit to put us here together in this church, and it's not an accident. So we are excited, God. We are thankful for ministry opportunities we have, and we ask for your blessing over those things. We ask that you would bless our our food truck and our homeless ministries. We ask that you bless the women's study and the men's studies. From these, God, we ask that you would draw people to yourself. We pray for people to be saved through these things, for lives to be changed, for growth in both the men and the women of our church as we study together that people would mature in their faith. In these things, God, we pray for unity. We ask that you would keep us united in this common mission to make disciples of all people, the thing that you have called us to. Help us not to get distracted by secondary things. Help us to remain gracious with one another so that divisions and arguments would not keep us from our mission, would not keep us from our goals. And when disputes do happen in the church, as they will, God, because we are sinful people, and where you put sinful people together, there will be disputes. We ask for your wisdom in how to address them. We pray for humility to resolve them. And we pray that there would not be one thing that would become more important to us than the gospel that unites us. God, keep us grounded in the truth. Keep us grounded in your word. So that as we do ministry together as one church, we would be united in that common goal to multiply a passionate love for you. Bless our time in your word this evening. Thank you for it. We give you the praise for all things, and we are grateful to be part of your church. Amen. Tonight, as I mentioned, we are going to begin our study through the book of Genesis, and our plan over the next six months is to cover Genesis, unlike how we've done it when preaching through different texts and different books in the past. Typically, especially when we are in the epistles, what Paul's letters are right, Paul's letters that he's written, we're typically dissecting every little phrase, every little paragraph, every little piece and part of it. 
Genesis is a book of 50 chapters, some of them very long. Some of those stories very long, and those stories span multiple chapters. And so instead of going into great detail into every single verse, our plan for the next six months is to really hit the major themes, the major stories, the, the major arcs in how God has really worked out his plan in history through the stories of Genesis that ultimately bring us to the person of Jesus Christ. So our goal is really to ground us in this very foundational book, because if we don't understand Genesis, we're going to miss what the rest of the Bible is really talking about. If we don't have a good structure and foundation in Genesis, we're going to miss major things of Scripture. So our time tonight is really meant to be an overview. We're not going to dig into a particular story tonight. It's going to be multiple different stories that we'll look at and really give us an overview of the book in general. Some of it will be more informative, um, hopefully not too boring, but some of it will be somewhat of a history lesson. The vast majority of it, though, will, will be in the text in different places in Genesis. If I was to ask you to take an event from the last decade and write a summary about that event, it could be anything that you want to write about. It could be a particular major event that happened in the world. It could be something that is more personal to you. It could be something that was related to one of your favorite sports teams. I was joking around with guys earlier. I'm breaking my promise already. You could write about your favorite sports team winning the Super Bowl in the last 10 years, but for most of you Steelers fans, that doesn't apply. I'm sorry. Um, I am not a Steelers fan. I already broke my 2023 commitment. I said I wasn't going to make Steelers jokes anymore, so sorry about that. I'll try to do better next time. But if you wanted to write something about an event or an occurrence of the last 10 years, you could probably do that relatively easily because most of us have experienced those things. We remember them, we recall them. Now, if I asked you to write about an event that happened 100 years ago or even 1,000 years ago, be a bit more challenging. You would have to do more research. Most of us weren't there. Actually, I don't think anyone was there 75, 100 years ago. None of us were there, so we would have to research about it. We'd have to read books. We'd have to read articles. Now, if I told you to do this and I said, you're not allowed to actually use any written materials. You have to write a summary of events having nothing as a reference point. How do you think we would do? Write about World War II without having any books, having no reference point outside of just the things that you've heard about it. Probably wouldn't be able to provide a ton of detail. Wouldn't be the best summary in the world. If it was a thousand years ago, go back to Roman history, write about the Romans. Probably not many of us could do a great job with that. The book of Genesis is exactly that for Moses. Moses is the author of the book of Genesis. The stories that he writes about and everything that he puts down on paper for us to read were events that happened thousands of years before he was alive. And they didn't have a printing press. They didn't have books. They didn't have things written down at this time. So Moses is relying on being able to remember things that he's been told about all of these events. And I'm sure some of you are like, how, how could that possibly happen? How could you write an entire book, 50 chapters long, in-depth, detailed stories of things that have happened to people without actually having been there? I think we answer that question ultimately with two things. First, we understand that the Bible is written by, through the inspiration of God. New Testament tells us that. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, that all scriptures says it's breathed out by God. They're the very words of God. That what is written on the pages in front of you is exactly what God desired to have written. There's not a word that was added that wasn't intended by God. There's not a word missing that God would have wanted there. So all of scripture is inspired by God. So there's this, there's this element of a miraculous piece to how Moses wrote the book of Genesis. There's a, there's a miraculous element. But I don't want us to think of that as Moses being in some type of a trance, or Moses had a dream and all of these words flashed before him and he 
wrote them down as he had his dreams. Instead, what God would do through inspiration, through the Holy Spirit's work in people's lives, is to use their experiences, use the different things that they have gone through and the different things that they have, the knowledge that they have, to actually write the Scripture. Second Peter talks about this, and it says that no Scripture was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the, the way men wrote the books of the Bible, and Moses particularly for Genesis, is that he knew of these stories. In that time, there was, a, there was an oral tradition that was passed down generation to generation. Fathers would tell their sons, who would tell their sons, who would tell their sons, all of the stories of history. And it was, it was robust. It was detailed. So Moses would have heard from his family growing up all of the stories of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, all the way through. He would have heard how God created this world from nothing. He would have understood that men were created in the image of God. He would have heard the story of the fall where Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God. He would have known all those things. The stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have been ingrained in everything that he learned. So while he didn't have it written down, he was led by the Holy Spirit under the inspiration of God to produce a book from all of the things that he had heard throughout all of his life. God had prepared him for decades to be able to write down the book of Genesis, to give us these events. The events of Genesis span thousands of years. In fact, if you were to take everything from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50, more time passes in history in this book than the rest of Scripture. So it, it covers many thousands of years in history. And Moses is writing in a particular context in history. He's writing about particular events. There's going to be things we read that don't make sense to us. For example, in the context and the culture of Genesis, men had multiple wives. We don't, we don't have multiple wives within our culture. That's not something that's good. Not something I would want, just on a personal level, like one's enough for me. I'm good with one. I think all of you guys who are married, you're good with one as well. So, but in that time, Abraham had relations with multiple women because his wife, Sarah, actually encourages Abraham to sleep with his, her servant. It's a very odd thing. If you're like, hey, I have a servant. Why don't you just go sleep with her? That's not something that fits within our culture because Moses is writing about a time period that's very different than ours. We're going to hear about and read about through this book, slavery. We've mentioned multiple times in different, different messages and from up here before that slavery in the Bible is very different than slavery as we understand it to be race-based American slavery. It's very different. But slavery did exist. Slavery existed in this time. And really, you go back all the way in recorded history to the earliest time we have recorded, there's been slavery ever since. When you put sinful people in sinful places together, what do they do? They oppress people and they enslave people. That's just, the, that's just history, unfortunately. And even today, there are instances in the world, parts of the world, where slavery still exists. So it's, it's not a concept that we're familiar with because we don't have that here. And the, the framework and the structure that we understand slavery in is very different than that. So there's going to be times where we come across things that may or may not fully make sense to us, and we'll do our best to explain the historical context to that stuff. While Moses is giving a history, what we'll see through this book is that he gives a history of the events of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of this history. The book of Genesis really is an argument against the culture of that time. Again, Moses is writing in the ancient Near Eastern culture, a culture that worshiped other gods. So the idea of monotheism, that there is one God, is a foreign concept in that culture. They don't understand that. So when Moses is writing about there being one God who chooses his people, that doesn't make sense for that culture. And so Moses is writing these things to say, no, this, this thing with what God's doing in his people is very different than the rest of the culture. 
the culture back then believed that you had all these multiple gods who would war against one another. And so they, they saw all of life through the lens of that, that if you were to, you were to have good, prosperous crops, that meant the God of prosperity was winning the battle that year. If you were seeing drought and famine, the God who wanted to destroy things, he was winning the battle. There was these cosmic conflicts going on and we were just pawns in their cosmic games. That was the culture of the time. So then when you read the book of Genesis and you see things showcasing the sovereignty of God, how a singular deity is moving things in a particular way and operating uninhibited through any, by anything else, it's a foreign concept to that culture. They don't understand sovereignty. They don't understand the providence of God that he's working in history to bring about a certain end. They, they wouldn't have understood that. But the beauty of that is that while Moses is writing to a particular context, to a particular people thousands of years ago, about events that happened thousands of years before he was born, all of these events, all of the things that we're going to read are applicable to us. That's the beauty of the Bible. That's the beauty of Scripture is that even though we have all of these things in the past in their context and we never want to divorce it from the context, it still can be applied to us. As I thought about how, how do we do an overview of Genesis? There's so many things to talk about, so many themes. We could go in many different directions, many options. As I just mentioned, Genesis is a story of sovereignty. It's a story of how God providentially works out the details of history in the lives of people for his good plans and his good purposes, ultimately to bring about the salvation through Jesus Christ. That's one way we could do it. We could spend our time working through the last words that we have recorded of, of Joseph saying, you meant something for evil, but God meant it for good. We could spend our time there. Genesis is a story of God's redemptive plan, that he chooses for himself a people, starting with a man named Abram, where God makes a promise to Abram that, the, that his descendants would be more will be multiplied greater than the number of the stars in the sky or the sands of the sea, that they would be innumerable, and that through, the, through Abram, the whole world would be blessed. And so we could trace through Genesis in this overview how God chooses a pagan man to start his people. Consider that for a moment. The first Israelite was a Gentile. He and his family worshipped their own gods. Joshua 24 says that Abraham and his family worshipped their own gods. The tribes that he came from, it's present-day Iraq, they worshipped the moon and the stars. So God took a pagan moon worshipper and from him produced his people. We could spend time tracing all of that through. And and relish in the mercy that God displays to take a pagan, living in a pagan land, and say, no, you are going to be mine. I'm going to choose you out of that. Genesis is a story of brotherly conflict. After the fall, what's the first story? Cain and Abel. Two brothers, angry with each other. What happens? One brother kills the other. Cain, in his sin, kills his brother. The first sin recorded after the fall after Adam and Eve do what they do is a murder. First murder recorded in history. The last story of Genesis, a novel spanning multiple different chapters, the story of conflict between Joseph and his brothers. Joseph sold into slavery. This conflict ultimately ends, though, not with death like the first one, but ends in forgiveness. The first story ends in murder. This one ends in reconciliation. So we could trace all of that through. But rather than doing those things tonight, I want us to take a different path and consider this question. How do people change? How do people change? Because we do change. We change in many different ways. We can't help but change. We change physically. We don't look the same way we did when we were eight years old, when we were 18 years old, when we were 38 years old. We learn new things. We mature over time. 
We're different than we were when we were in high school. We're not the same people we were at 18 as we are now. For many of us, myself included, that's probably a good thing. We're not like we were 20 years ago. Our experiences change us. Our, our difficulties and our trials in life change us. We see this in a marriage relationship. The person you married is probably different than they are now from what they were then because life has changed them. And so marriage becomes a, a pursuit of a person you love to know them and love them as they've changed. So we know all about change. And as Christians, our hope is not that we just change physically, not that we just change emotionally, not that we just mature and grow up, but that we change spiritually and ultimately change for the better. Our desire is that we become more like Christ. So as we are transformed by the gospel, we, we leave our old selves behind and we become something new. There are dozens of books, dozens of articles we can read, reflect on about the idea of change. There's actually a book in our bookstore that says you can change. It's a good book. You should read it if you'd like. But we recognize as Christians that God is in the business of changing us. He's not in the business of just leaving us where we are. He's in the business of changing us. He doesn't just simply draw people to himself, say you're forgiven of sins, and then let us go off to continue to live how we wanted to live. God's project, God's work in our lives as Christians is for our hearts to change. And I don't want to get us mixed up here because Chris actually mentioned this last week. We don't change in order to become Christians. We don't change in order to get grace. We get grace and therefore we change. The gospel is that even though we are sinners, God loves us. And in his perfect plan, Jesus humbled himself. He became a man and he submitted himself to death on a cross. Why? So that in his death, he took our place. The punishment that we deserved... The wrath of God poured out on us for our sin instead was poured out on Christ. So that instead of receiving this wrath, what do we receive? The Bible says we receive grace upon grace upon grace. And then in response to the grace we receive from God, we change. If we invert that, if we change that pattern, we miss the gospel. We lose the gospel. If instead we think, well, I have to change, I need to clean myself up, I need to do better, I need to be better, then God will give me grace. That's not grace, that's works. And if it's works, then we do not have the gospel. Because the gospel is all about grace. It's not that you can clean yourself up enough that God will give you grace, it's that he has given you grace, and then once he gives it to you, he will use that grace to change you. Paul tells us that we will be changed from one degree of glory to another. But how do we do it? Several ways we can answer that question. We could say, well, it's the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. That's true. We could say, I need to read the Bible more, and then if I read the Bible more, I will change. Also true. We could be accountable to other Christians. True. That would help us change. The fellowship and communion that we have in church, that will help us change. Absolutely true. All of those things are good answers. All of those things are right answers. But it's different than the answer that I want to give to the question of how do we change. I think a very practical answer that we'll find in the book of Genesis is this. How do we change? You and I must own our sin. We must own our sin. We'll look specifically at what that means in a moment, but I want us to notice phrases I didn't use. I didn't say own our mistakes. I didn't say we need to own our immaturity, our errors in judgment. I said own our sin. Because when we think of true change as a Christian, our focus needs to be not on our immaturity, not on our mistakes but on our character, on our hearts, on the way that we have offended God and we've offended others. We use the word sin because the Bible uses the word sin. It's a biblical term. Jesus didn't die for my mistakes. 
Jesus didn't die because I'm immature. He didn't die for my shortcomings. He died because of my sin. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. And so how do we change? We own our sin. And a word of caution, because it's easy to do this when we start talking about sin and we're going to look at it the way that we do. It's easy easy for us to hear these things and say, well, this person over here really needs to own their sin. This other person on the other side of the room, they need to own their sin. You know, I wish my family could hear this because they need to own their sin. I wish my spouse could hear this because he or she needs to own his or her sin. That may be true. They probably do. But when we think of the context of owning our sin, let's make sure that when we are talking about this, we are talking about owning our sin and not the fact that other people aren't owning theirs. It's so easy to fall into a trap where we point the finger at other people and say, well, you've got a lot of stuff to own up to. And yet in reality, we have our own stuff that we need to own up to. We have our own sin that we need to look at and own. I want us to notice a pattern in Genesis that will draw this out. And it's not original to me. Um, There is an academic bulletin, academic journal called the Tyndale Bulletin. There's an article written, I think, 2018, 2019, called Dodging the Question. It's written by two men, Alex Lee, Jeffrey Harper, and I think they show a pattern that helps us to understand this idea of how do people change, the idea of owning our sin. Eight times in the book of Genesis, there is a Hebrew phrase that's used. It's mazot azith. I won't say that over and over again. I'll say what the translation is. What is it that you have done? What is this you have done? Eight times this is used in the book of Genesis, and I think it's intentional. I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's there eight times on purpose. And what we'll see as we walk through is a pattern that I think Moses includes for us that will actually highlight multiple times people are confronted with their sin, and yet they fail to respond properly until the very end. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles. If not, the words of the text will be on the screen. The first, word, the first verse we're going to look at is actually Genesis 3.13. Genesis 3.13, so I'll take you back to the context. We're in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have been living in innocence for many, for who knows how long. They've been living without, without sin, and yet they have chosen to disobey God, and they, they eat from the tree, and so God confronts them. The first time God has ever confronted anyone with sin He comes to Adam and Eve who are ashamed. They have exposed themselves. They know that they are sinners now. They're hiding. They're ashamed. And God finds them. And he asks them, says specifically to Eve, Genesis 3.13, what is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? And Eve responds with these words, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the first confrontation of anyone who has ever sinned and Eve responds with shifting the blame to someone else. Says, it's it's not my fault, it's the serpent. The serpent deceived me, that's why I sinned. It was somebody else's fault. And before all the men in the room are like, see, the woman, look what she did. She's shifting blame. Go a couple verses before and he says to Adam, you ate of the tree, why did you eat of the tree? And he says, it's the woman not my wife, not bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the woman that you gave me, God, she's the one that caused me to do this. So either way, men or women, we're shifting the blame to somebody else, pointing to something else to say, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't my fault, it was something else going on. This is so easy for us to do. When we are confronted with sin, it's almost instinctual that we push aside and say, no, it's something else in life. You know, you, you just don't understand. I, I was raised a certain way. All of my family lies, so I just kind of fall along with it. Well, you don't understand because I, I was treated a certain way as a kid, and so that influences me, and now I sin because of that. So it's not really my fault. It's because of the way my parents raised me. I didn't have as many opportunities as everyone else, and so I I sin because if I had opportunities like you had, I wouldn't sin the way that I do. 
Those things might be true. I think you look around at all of our different stories and you can find very challenging upbringings, very broken things that we've endured, things that have impacted and changed our lives from when we were very little all the way through to adulthood. Each of us has stories and those things, the way we were raised, the way that we were brought up, the different things that we've endured and encountered, the different trials and struggles that we faced have harmed us. They've, they've made things more difficult for us, especially when those things have been negative. And while that may be true and it might make life hard, we can't look at those things and say, that's the excuse, that's the reason why I sin. Because when we do that, when we are confronted with our sin and we just shift the blame to someone else, we're not owning our sin. Adam and Eve shifted the blame. They said, it's not my fault. I, I, it wasn't me. I didn't sin. It was the woman. It was the serpent. Something else caused me to sin and we shift the blame. What is this you have done? First response in recorded history is shift the blame to someone else. Second use of this phrase, actually turn one chapter over, Genesis chapter 4. We've already referenced this story, Cain and Abel are brothers. Cain becomes angry with God because God has chosen Abel and his sacrifice and his offering over Cain's, and Cain then kills his brother, the first murder recorded in history. God confronts Cain with the same question, what have you done? Same words, same question, what have you done? And God punishes Cain for his sin. You notice here what, what Cain says. He says, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your blood, brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. So, so Cain is punished for his sin. And what is his response to this punishment? It's simply to complain. He's confronted in his sin, and yet... His response is, my punishment is too much for me. So when he's confronted with sin, he complains. You know, God actually comes to Cain earlier in the chapter, in verse 7, and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. It wants to devour you. You would do well to not let it happen. If you do well, sin won't devour you, and yet he goes out and he kills his brother. He had an opportunity when he was tempted to sin to do right, but he didn't. And now when, he comes, when God comes to Cain and confronts him on that sin and says, what have you done? His response is, this punishment's too much. It's too great for me. He almost flips around on God and says, God, you're not treating me fairly. Meanwhile, his brother's blood is still soaking into the ground. You treated me unfairly. So the first response to being confronted with sin was to shift the blame. The second one is to complain. We go to number three, Genesis chapter 12. This is the first of three sister wives stories. Told you it was going to get really strange. It's about, to get a, it's about to get a little strange. In this one, Abraham at the time, his name was just Abram. At, the, at this point in Genesis chapter 12, he takes his family into Egypt. There's a famine in the land. He goes to Egypt and he lies and he tells his wife to lie, to say, Tell everyone that you're my sister and not my wife, because if they find out you're my wife, you're very beautiful, they will kill me. Just a side note, Sarah's 80 years old at this point. So like for any of us, as we're getting older, we're like, I'm not looking as good as I used to. Sarah was 80 years old and apparently caught the eye of Pharaoh, the greatest, like the ruler of the world at the time. So there's hope for all of us. <laughs> Abram is afraid of being killed, so he says, lie. So what happens? Pharaoh sees Sarah and says she is beautiful. He takes her into his home, and God inflicts plagues on the entire house of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh experiences all these things, and he, he actually gives to Abraham wealth. He blesses Abraham. It says that he gives him servants and animals and all of these different things, and it makes Abram wealthy. So he, he pays for Sarah to come and be his. Pharaoh is inflicted with all of these things, and he approaches and confronts Abram, and he says this, what is this you have done to me? 
He makes this a bit personal. What is this you've done to me? And then he tells Abram, take your stuff, take back your wife, and go. And that's how the story ends. Abram just leaves. And I think the, the third way we see that he responds to being confronted with sin is he just walks away. There's no mention of him paying Pharaoh back anything that he's been given. There's no mention of even an acknowledgement that what he's done is wrong, that he has lied and he's hurt people within Pharaoh's house. No attempt to restore anything or bring about restitution. He doesn't even acknowledge what he's done. He simply walks away. And this is a familiar thing for us as well when we're confronted in sin. And it could happen, the, the confrontation with sin could happen when we're reading scripture from conviction from the Holy Spirit. It could be someone who comes and confronts us in our sin and our solution is to just walk away. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with it. This is too triggering for me. I'm just going to leave. I'm not going to acknowledge my sin. I'm not going to try to do what's right and make things right. I'm just going to walk away. Now, some caveat to this. You can be falsely accused of sin. Satan is a liar. Satan is an accuser. So if you are being falsely accused of being wrong or being sinful, sometimes the appropriate thing to do is to walk away, to seek to live peaceably with all people. But what does the text say about Abraham? The text doesn't say that he was falsely accused. In fact, it was known that he had sinned. Abram knowingly lies and he's caught in his sin. And rather than owning it, rather than saying he's sorry, rather than seeking to make repentance a real thing and make things right with those people, he just walks away. Number four, Genesis chapter 20. We're moving a little quick and that's okay because we have multiple verses to get to. Genesis chapter 20. You would think Abraham's learned his lesson. Not going not gonna to do that again. That ended poorly for me. But here we come to Genesis chapter 20. Abraham is in a new land. There's a new king, Abimelech. And he says the same thing. Lie. Tell them that you're my sister because otherwise they might kill me. Abraham does this. Sarah's brought into Abimelech's house and the Bible goes so far as to say that Abimelech, I mean, he was preparing to sleep with her and God stops it from happening. God comes to Abimelech in a dream and he tells him what's happened. And Abimelech questions Abraham and he says this, what have you done to us? An even greater impact. Not just what have you done to me, but what have you done to us? Because what was happening to Abimelech was affecting the entire house of Abimelech. What have you done to us? Here, Abraham doesn't just walk away like the last time, but he actually starts to justify himself. Look at verses 11 and 12. He said, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. So Abimelech says, Abraham, why did you do this? Well, you know what you're like. You don't fear God. You would have killed me. You, you know what you're like. He, he shifts it around and points it back to them and says, you know, you're really the bad guys in all of this. I'm not really the bad guy. It's, it's not me. It's actually you. If you wouldn't have gone around killing people, I probably wouldn't have lied. And then he says in verse 12, besides, she's indeed my sister, the daughter of my father. They're not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So technically, technically, I didn't actually lie. She's technically my sister. Most of our lives are spent justifying things. We, we rationalize so much of our behavior. Mostly because, especially in, I think, the context we're in currently within our culture, is that we tend to only listen to and find things that support what we think and support our ideas. So for Abraham, he believed these people will kill him, so he, he rationalizes that the only way to stay alive is to just lie. Sin against God, sin against these people. And so rather than owning his sin and confessing it, he just says, no, I, I can't do it. So easy to convince ourselves of this, that, that the outcome of confessing our sin and owning our sin will actually do more harm than good. You know, if, if I confess that, my, my spouse is going to get really hurt. If I confess that, you know, my, my job might get messed up, 
If I confess that, my, my family does not react to bad news well. And I, I just can't do it. It'll, it'll break my spouse's heart. It'll break my mom's heart if I confess this. And so I'm just going to keep it all locked up. I'm going to justify why it's okay that I'm going to continue in sin. And like I said, he finds this technicality. He says, she's, she's technically my sister. I'm sure we've, we've tried this one too. Well, technically, technically, I didn't actually steal anything. I was borrowing it and just hoping he didn't notice it was gone. <laughs> technically, I didn't say you looked bad. I was just wondering why you were wearing that out to dinner tonight. Technically, technically, I didn't actually do anything wrong. I didn't, I didn't technically cheat. Like The answers were visible. They were just in my line of sight on the test, and so I copied them. I didn't technically cheat. He should have done a better job of covering up his answers, and it would have been fine. But Abraham, he rationalizes this. Confronted with sin, he doesn't just walk away like last time. He says, no, actually, like you're the wrong one. If you, wouldn't, if you wouldn't seek to kill me, I wouldn't do that. Have you ever had that happen to you? you? You gain the courage to confront someone in their sin, and then they turn around and they make you feel like you're the one who's actually the sinner, that you're the bad one, you're the bad guy. You walk away feeling worse, even though you're the one who was in the right. This is what happens when people justify and rationalize their sin. Number five. Genesis chapter 26. A few chapters later, you would think the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and in this case, it doesn't. Isaac, same situation with another Abimelech, not the same man, probably just the title for a king. He has Rebekah, and he tells everyone there, Rebekah's actually my sister, not my wife. Abimelech sees the two of them interacting in some intimate fashion and realizes, hmm, that's, that's not his sister. Brothers and sisters shouldn't be kissing like that. So that's not his sister. And Abimelech approaches Isaac and he says, what is this you have done to us? And Isaac just kind of ignores him. In one ear and out the other. What is this you have done to us? He doesn't even respond. He just goes about his business sows in the land, makes himself a lot of wealth. Doesn't even, doesn't even bother to say anything. He just ignores it. It's like he's hearing words, but he's not actually listening, that in one ear and out the other. We, we do this. I mean, all of us, I'm sure, are guilty of it at some point. If I'm sitting there engrossed in something, looking at something, and Elizabeth says, hey, can you do this? I heard the words. Did I actually listen? I mean, it depends on if I actually did it. Probably not. Hey, can you pick this up from the store? I heard the words, but then I call her. What did you want me to pick up again? Because I didn't actually listen. So, so Isaac's hearing the words. He's, he's got it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. I lied to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. That's interesting. I'll take that into consideration for next time, but it doesn't actually change. Just goes about his business, goes about his life. We hear this, the word spoken, we are confronted in sin, and yet we just ignore it. Number six, Genesis 29. This is now Isaac's son. So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob goes and he lives with his uncle, and he sees a woman there, Laban's daughter, Rachel. He says, I, I love Rachel. She's the one that I want to marry. So Laban, what do I need to do to marry your daughter, Rachel? And they, they come up with this plan. Work for me for seven years and you can have Rachel's hand in marriage. I'll, I'll give her to you. So he works hard for seven years working for Laban. Wedding day comes. They have the, the wedding. The wedding night comes. Jacob wakes up the next morning. Laban's pulled the old switcheroo. Sends a different daughter in. It's not Rachel he wakes up to, it's Leah, the oldest daughter. How that happens? It's dark, it was a wedding, assume they were drunk, I have no idea. Just assume they had too much alcohol, there's no electricity then, I don't know. I don't know how that happens, but it did. So Jacob comes to Laban and, and he's like, you, you tricked me. 
What is this you have done to me? I wanted to marry Rachel. Instead, you, get, you gave me Leah. And Laban's response is excuses. It is not done like this in our country. He appeals to the culture. He says, listen, if, if you just knew how we did things here, you wouldn't even have asked that. He just starts making excuses. It's not done like this here. Jacob, you didn't realize that the way we do things, the older sister, she's the one who gets married first before the younger sister. So I was right to lie to you. I was right to deceive you. I was right to send the wrong woman in to have sex with you because that's just how we do it here. Everyone watches that show. Everyone watches that movie. You don't understand how my family works. Everyone just acts this way. No one reports that stuff on their taxes, so I don't either. Who cares? Not a big deal. We make excuses rather than owning our sin. Example number seven, Genesis 31. Again, we have another conflict between Jacob and Laban. Uh, what's the old expression? What goes around comes around? Well, here in Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban have another conflict in this story. Jacob has served Laban for over 14 years. Because after he found out he'd married the wrong daughter, Laban says, well, you have to work for me for another seven years to marry Rachel, the one that you want. So he does. He works for 14 years. He marries both women. He starts to have children. God blesses Jacob. Jacob and Laban begin to have tensions again. And so Jacob decides to leave secretly in the night. He takes all of his family, takes everything, and he leaves secretly. And it actually goes so far as to say that he, he multiplied his wealth to the detriment of Laban. And I think that was God, in a way, helping Jacob to grow and multiply his wealth. But he, he multiplies his wealth, and Laban is left with little, with less. So he runs away, and Laban actually takes men, and he follows after Jacob. And he catches up to him, and he says, what have you done? What have you done? You tricked me. You tricked me. You, you ran off with my daughters and even my idols are missing. You've stolen my idols from me. Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen the family idols from the house, but you've stolen these idols from me. You've stolen my possessions. Jacob's response to this is kind of like, well, look, look at all the stuff you've done. If I told you I was going to leave, you would have just killed me and taken your daughters back. Look at all the stuff you've done to me. I just couldn't trust you to let me leave, so I had no choice. I had no choice but to take from you. I had no choice but to gain wealth while you lost it, and I had no choice but to run away in the middle of the night. So he turns his offense back, and he actually accuses Laban of doing wrong. So seven times we have this phrase, what is this you have done? Seven times we've seen this phrase, seven times we've seen poor responses. God's people respond poorly. They shift the blame. They complain. They make excuses. They rationalize. They ignore. They do all of these things we've talked about. But then we come to number eight, Genesis chapter 44. It's the, the last overarching story of the book. Set some context for us. Joseph, when he was younger, was sold into slavery by his brothers. He sold into slavery by his brothers because they hated him, because Jacob had a favorite son. His favorite son was Joseph. So you can, you can start to track the family history here. Abraham to Joseph, and you realize there's, there's just a lot of messed up stuff in this family. And it's somewhat of a helpful reminder for us to think like, we're never too messed up for God. You see all of the things like people are lying, people are doing all this wacky, crazy stuff with sisters and wives and cousins and all these things. And you're like, God picked this family? Like, what? If God can save Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he can save any of us and any of our sin. So they, they take Joseph and plan to kill him, but Judah actually stands up. This is Genesis 37, he says, no, don't kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. So they sell Joseph into slavery and they tell their father, Jacob, well, Joseph must have been killed by an animal on the way. 
Here's his coat. His coat's been ripped up. It's bloody. He must have been killed by an animal. So Joseph is taken all the way into Egypt, thousands of miles from his family, traded for some pieces of silver, and he becomes a slave, works and serves in a house. He gets falsely accused of sexual assault. He's thrown into prison. And over time, as you track the story of Joseph, you come to find that he actually becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. God, God sees fit to bring him into this place. And he does it for a purpose, because Joseph is tasked then with saving the world. There's going to be a famine that comes, and Joseph is tasked with actually saving the whole country. And he does. He plans accordingly. He does what he needs to. He saves the entire country, and in a sense, saves that area of the world. Little does Joseph know that his family is dealing with famine as well, and so Joseph's brothers come to Egypt. They're asking for food, and they don't realize it, but they're standing in front of their brother that they'd sold into slavery 20 years before. They don't realize this, and so Joseph, knowing who they are, sends them off, gives them food, and says, come back with your youngest brother, Benjamin. Now, Benjamin took Joseph's place. He was the new favorite son of Jacob. So they need to go and get more food. And Joseph's brothers tell Jacob, we need to bring Benjamin back or it's not going to work. We're not going to be able to get more food. And Jacob says, I, I really don't want him to go because if Benjamin dies, if something happens to him, I, I won't be able to handle it. Jo I've already lost Joseph. Don't let me lose Benjamin too. But eventually they convince him to let him go. So they bring Benjamin down. Joseph attempts to test his brothers. He wants to know if his brothers have changed. So they have their, their new favorite son here, Benjamin, and Joseph actually tricks them, and he, he takes a silver cup. He puts it in Benjamin's bag. He catches them in the act of theft. And he says to them, what is this deed that you have done? He confronts them with this supposed sin even though Benjamin, none of them had done any wrong, Joseph was testing them. He says, what is this deed you have done? The eighth time in this book that someone is asking God's people, what is this you have done? And this is the only time that someone owns their sin. Specifically Judah. The same brother who sold Joseph into slavery, he takes leadership among the brothers, not even the oldest. He's the fourth oldest and he owns his sin. Notice what he says in verse 16 of chapter 44. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. This is a man that sold his brother into slavery because he hated him so much. You go back six chapters to Genesis 38 and you have possibly the most awkward story in all of the Bible where Judah impregnates his daughter-in-law thinking she's a prostitute. This is not a righteous, holy man. And yet when he's confronted with his sin, he demonstrates that he's a changed man. He owns his sin. And he says, what is this guilt that God has found out our guilt? He stands in front of his brothers, his brother, not knowing it's his brother. And he makes this statement. And I don't think it's Judah thinking Benjamin's done anything wrong. I don't think he believes that, that Benjamin has actually done anything. I think what he's recalling and thinking about is the 20 years of guilt he's endured for selling his brother into slavery. God has found out our guilt. He's assuming that God is punishing them now for their sin against Joseph. They've been caught. After 20 years of a guilty conscience, God has finally exposed their sin. He says, what have you done, Judah? He could have blamed other people. He could have said, you don't understand the circumstances of what we had to do. Joseph was just a pain in the butt back then. You don't get it. He could have made so many excuses. He could have just walked away. He could have complained to God and said, God, this isn't fair. You're putting me in this situation. I don't like it. He could have just left Benjamin there to rot in a prison or die. He could have walked away from all these things, and yet he doesn't do anything any of those things. He simply owns his sin. What does it mean to own our sin? It means that we acknowledge the wrong we've done, and where we need to, we make it right.
We confess our guilt because in our sin, we're guilty of doing wrong. And if our sin has caused physical, financial, emotional harm to someone else, we do what we need to, to make those things right. We pay for the things that we've broken, not, not as some penance so that we feel better, but to acknowledge that the harm we have caused has hurt other people. And so we, in repentance, seek to do what's right. So that means if our sin has caused hurt and it requires a hard conversation, we have that conversation. It's hard to do. It's not easy. If there are consequences because of our sin, we face them. When was the last time you were confronted in your sin and you said, God, you have found out my guilt? I can't blame anyone else. I can't make any excuses. I am wrong. I am guilty. Seven times. God's people made the poor choice. The eighth time, Judah owns his sin. He ends his speech, actually the longest written dialogue, the longest written speech in all of Genesis. He ends his speech in verses 33 and 34. He says these words, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that I would find my father. I want to notice three things as we finish up. Judah refers to himself as a servant. In fact, he does this 10 times after he starts speaking in his speech. And I think this informs us in how we approach God when we're confronted with our sin. God is Lord. God is master. We are the servants. We don't come to God when we are owning our sin, making demands of God telling God what he should do. Instead, we are confessing our sin and we're placing ourselves under his authority as our master. Second, Judah's request is to take his brother's place. It's the first time in the Bible, first time in history that we know of that someone offers their life for the place of another. He wants to substitute himself. He wants to take the punishment that Benjamin was about to receive. Third, Judah appeals to his father. He says, for the sake of my father, Jacob, please do not do this. Take my life instead of Benjamin's. I don't think it's hard to make this connection. Judah, a guilty sinner for the sake of his father, offers his life so that Benjamin could live. And the Bible tells us that there is one, the lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, not guilty of any sin, perfect, the son of God, that for the sake of the father to appease the father's wrath substitutes himself for sinners. If Judah, guilty of selling his own family into slavery, could take his brother's place, how much more can Jesus, guilty of no sin, take our place? The Bible calls Jesus our brother. And that even when we were sinners, rebels against him, he died for us. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that if if we own our sin, we confess it and we take it to God, Jesus takes it from us. That guilt we're experiencing is gone because of what Jesus has done for us. But if we hold our sin, if we make excuses for it, if we rationalize it, if we blame others for our sin and we continue in it, our sin will bury us. We will hold it for all of our lives. God has found out our guilt. He knows where we've sinned. What will we do with it? Will we own it? Will we allow God to free us from it or will we make excuses and ultimately have it stay with us for eternity? Jesus, before he went to the cross, he had a meal with his disciples. He ate with them. And during that time, he he took bread and he broke it as a symbol of his body broken. He took a cup of wine and he gave it to each of them. He told them to drink. He said, The wine is a symbol of the blood that he would shed for them. Our sin and our guilt can only be forgiven and taken from us because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for what he did for us. Jesus told his disciples to eat and drink in remembrance of him, to remember Christ. That's what we do every week. Every week we take communion and it's a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done to forgive us of our sins. So if you are here tonight and you would say, I've trusted in this. I I have been forgiven of my sins because of what Jesus has done on the cross for me. I invite you to join. Please join with us. 
If you would say, though, that I, I don't believe this gospel, I, I don't yet know if this is what I believe, I'm not quite sure, we'd ask you just not to participate, not because we want to single you out, but just simply because we don't, we don't want you to participate in something that you don't believe in personally and for yourself. But if that is you, if you say, I don't believe this, I invite you to talk with someone this evening. We're going to sing a song, the music team's coming up now, and then we will take communion together as one church.